It's printed for you, and the bulletin is, uh, uh, is the, you, you'll want to keep that right in front of you as we go through the teachings. We'll be referring uh, to it uh, throughout the sermon. And so hear the word of the Lord to you, God's beloved children. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, so rich. A lifetime of study will not even get to the depths of your uh, perfect and holy word. And so uh, we pray uh, that you, your Holy Spirit, would guide us as we give our minds to this uh, rich and strange passage in 1 Corinthians. Give us hearts that are intrigued by who you are and what you've done throughout history and what you are doing in our midst. Draw us close to you. Give us ears to hear. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So the sermon this morning is going to be more of a teaching type sermon than others. You know, some sermons tend to be more practical. They talk about some area of our life and what the Bible has to say about that area of our life. Or some are more just kind of inspiring about who God is and kind of speaks to our emotional life. This is going to be one that's going to speak to our heads about how to understand, um, how to read and to understand the Bible. And one of the most important things to understand about the Bible, this big book that I know some of you probably read all the way through, some of you probably haven't, or maybe are intimidated by, it's a great big, it's a great big book, and what's even in there. The most important thing to understand about the Bible is that the Bible is a coherent, logical, and complete story. That is what the Bible is, is telling the story of the world, the story of the God who made this world, which is really a remarkable thing because, uh, you know, the Bible was written by at least 40 different people over a time span of at least 1,500 years, probably thousands of years, a time span over which the Bible was written. And these people were writing in different cultures, different centuries, different languages, with different writing styles, in different genres. And somehow, these 66 books that were written at all these different times come together and tell a unified, coherent story. That is remarkable. Of course, it's because God is the ultimate author of the Bible, who by his spirit has directed all these authors uh, throughout history. But the name for studying this storyline of the Bible is something called... Biblical theology. Biblical theology. Which is 
different than something else called systematic theology. Now, you maybe have heard these words, maybe you've never heard these words before, but what systematic theology is, is when you come to the Bible with a question. And you know, you know if you come to the Bible and you say, you know, I wonder what the Bible has to say about faith. And then you look throughout the Bible and you pick all these verses that talk about faith and you put them all together and you give this kind of, you know, systematic understanding of the answer to your question, this is what faith is. It's an important thing to do. But biblical theology, on the other hand, reverses it and first says, well, what questions is the Bible asking? What does the Bible talk about? What are the themes and patterns that tie together the story that the Bible is trying to tell? And uh, one of the things that you'll notice in this passage I just read, which talks about some of the main events from the Old Testament. Look at what it says in verse 6. It's an important, important little verse. Notice what Paul says. Now these things took place as examples for us. You notice that word examples. It comes up again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. Now the Greek word that's translated there, example, is the word uh, tupoi or tupikos. So we get the word type, or that certain things are typical. And what Paul is saying is there's certain typical things that God does in the Bible. There are certain patterns, certain molds, certain themes that repeat throughout the Bible that help us to understand what's happening in the story. So, you know, it's kind of like in a song. There's a chorus that's repeated throughout the, the song, and you hear that chorus again, and it kind of keeps you going. That's what the song is about. And uh, so for one example of something that's typical in the Bible is the Bible often talks about how God wants to dwell with his people. So in the beginning of the Bible, there's this garden where Adam and Eve live in this garden, and God comes and he walks around the garden, and he lives with them in the garden. And then when uh, Israel goes into the wilderness, and they're all living in tents in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, they're living in these tents, and God says, oh, I want you to build me a tent. I'm going to live in a tent with you. It's called a tabernacle. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to live with you. And then they go into the promised land. They get settled in the promised land. Well, oh, you guys all have houses now. It's time for God to have a house. God got a house called the temple, and he d- lived with them in the temple. And then Jesus came. And it says, in him, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. And so God dwelt among us in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit fills the church and all the Christians around the world. In every nation, there's these people whose bodies are now, God is dwelling in them by the Holy Spirit. So God's dwelling throughout the earth. And then the end of the Bible says that the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven and the dwelling place of God will be with man. And so you can say, oh, the whole story of the Bible, you can tell it through with this one thread ties the whole story of the Bible together that God wants to live with us. He wants to dwell with us. That's what biblical theology is. And this passage that we're looking at today is is one of the most intriguing passages with regard to biblical theology. And we see in this passage three patterns or molds, themes, that tie the whole Bible together. And so that's what we're going to talk about, is these three themes, and this is what they are. That the Bible is about the church. That's one thread that ties the whole story together, the church. The Bible is about the Christ. That's another thread that ties the whole story together. And the third one is that the Bible is about the creation, God's world that he made and his purposes in the creation. That's another theme that ties the whole uh, story together. The church, the Christ, and the creation. And we have to, if you're going to read the Bible well, these are themes that you have to have in the forefront of your mind that you're watching for as you read throughout. And so we're going to explain those, and Paul's going to be our teacher in some interesting verses here this morning. So, first theme is this. The Bible is about the church. 
Now, the reason why that's kind of interesting is because some of you might say, well, you know, if you know the Bible, the Bible has the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might say, well, the church doesn't show up until the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was Israel that was God's people. In the New Testament, there's the church. Well, you've got to say, not so fast. This is what it says in verse 1. Look at what Paul says. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, Paul's referring to the story in the Exodus story in the Old Testament. If you know that Israel was slaves in Egypt, and God's great liberation of Israel, they led them out of Egypt by Moses, and there was the parting of the Red Sea, and they passed through the sea, and there was this pillar of cloud that led them in the wilderness and led them through the Red Sea. And what's interesting here is that Paul is writing to a church in Corinth of largely Gentiles, non-Jewish people, like most of us are not Jewish people. And he says to them, those people who came out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea, they are your fathers. He said, they're not our fathers. We weren't, you know, we're not a part of Israel. I'm not ethnically a part of Israel. But Paul understands that what's happened in the church is that we have been brought into God's chosen people, Israel. We've been engrafted in so that we can say the people that we read about in the Old Testament are our fathers. That's our spiritual heritage. That's our family. Throughout, that's, and it's our family that ties together the whole Bible is watching God's dealings with our family. And so, you know, this is the way, if you read Romans chapter 11, Paul says that Israel in the Old Testament was like an olive tree. And we were like these wild olive branches that God took and, you know, engrafted into the tree so we became a part of the tree. So we became, we became a part of the true Israel. So Israel has expanded to include all these people from every nation of, of the earth. And so one of the unifying storylines of the Bible that ties the whole Bible together is the people of God, the church, those who have been called out of the world, have been chosen by God to be a light to the world. And this passage identifies three qualities of God's chosen people that I want to point out. Okay? So the Bible's about the church, and here's a few things it says about the church. That first of all, God's people are baptized. That's throughout the, throughout the Bible. God's chosen people pass through the waters. So you see that there in verse 1 again. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So this is an amazing statement that Paul is saying, you know, all of Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea, they were all being baptized. And, you know, he talks about the cloud that was following them. There's probably some allusion to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and baptism, they work together. And here's the cloud that's hovering over and leading Israel. And they passed through the waters and they were baptized. And so... Uh, um, this is to say that what, you know, when, when Moses wrote the book of Exodus and he told the story about Israel being led out of Egypt and passing through the Red Sea, he was not predicting what we were going to do in Christian baptism. But what Paul's saying is that if you're a baptized person, he's trying to awaken your imagination to understand what does your baptism mean? When you pass through those waters, you were liberated out of slavery. And we were slaves to sin, and we passed through the waters of baptism. We have been washed, we've been cleaned, we have been called God's beloved sons that will not be enslaved any longer, and he will liberate us. And we should view our baptisms that way, that that's, that, that's what's happened to us. And uh, something like the Exodus has happened to us. And you know, I, I just have to point out one thing. You know, we're a church that baptizes babies. And, you know, you may 
not come from a tradition where you churches baptize babies, but this is one of the reasons we do that, is, you know, when Israel went out of Egypt, and God was saving them, and they passed through the waters, who passed through the waters? It was whole families. It wasn't just the adults. You know, they were carrying the babies through through the waters, and that's what God does, is he rescues whole families together, and draws them to himself, and that's his purposes, for his grace, not to just go to individuals, but to whole families, and that's, that was true in the Old Testament, that's true in the New Testament as well, and so, now you might read this, though, and you say, well, you know, this is a little different than baptism, because Paul says there that Israel was baptized into Moses, now, as Christians, aren't we different? We were baptized into Christ. You know, it's different. They were under Moses, we're under Christ. Well, not so fast, because the second thing that it says, not only that God's people are baptized, but also that God's people feast on Christ. And look, at this is a strange verse right here. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now this is an amazing statement. What he's talking about is after Israel passed through the waters, after they were baptized and they were in the wilderness, God sent bread down from heaven, this manna that they ate every day. That's what they lived on. And then there's this other story where they were, you know, needed water, and so Moses struck this rock with water, and water came out. And, and he says it's very similar uh, uh, to what we do here. You know, we eat the bread and we drink the wine. After we're baptized, we come to the table, we eat the bread, and we drink the wine. That's what we do. And, um, and God provided water for them, and they were spiritually nourished in the same way we were. He said it was Christ who was nourishing them. It's Christ who nourishes us, and it was Christ who was nourishing them in the Old Testament. Which tells us that the story of Israel in the Old Testament follows a pattern that is the same pattern of our life. See, Israel, they were slaves. In Egypt, we were slaves to sin. God liberated them by his grace. He said it was not because of anything righteous in them. It wasn't because they were good people. It was just simply because he had chosen them by his grace and he set his love on them. He liberated them from Egypt. That's the same with us. God saves us from our sin, not because of our good works, not because we're good people, not because we're righteous, it's because of his love and his grace to us. And then they pass through the waters of baptism, and we pass through the waters of baptism, and then he feeds them with the bread and the drink, and he feeds us with the bread and the drink. And then they were wandering in the wilderness looking forward to the promised land. That's what we are right now. We're in a wilderness. This life is a wilderness. We are looking forward to the promised land where God will make all things new and we will live in his presence forever and we'll be made whole. And Israel was led by this mediator Moses and we're led by the better Moses who is Jesus. And so what you see is there is a pattern, there's a story, there's a chorus that is repeating throughout the scriptures and it's the same chorus that define the life of Israel, that defines our life, that defines Paul's life, and all of God's people throughout history. And so this also tells us that, you know, when we do baptism in the Lord's Supper, you might have thought this was just something Jesus made up, you know, when, during his ministry. No, Jesus' whole mind and heart was captured by this story. And so this story shaped the, the rites and the, and the elements of, of our worship and our life together. So there's one other thing, though, about God's people. So God's people are baptized, they feast on Christ, and, and yet there's one other thing, is that this passage says that God's people are also saved to live holy lives. God saves us from slavery in order to live lives for him of service and holiness. And, you know, it's a big part of this passage is that Paul is giving a warning 
to the church in Corinth. And you see this warning in verse 5. Look at what it says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now what Paul's talking about, he's bringing together a number of stories from the Old Testament. One of the main ones is, you might know the story of the golden calf. When Israel, after they'd come out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and to get the law. And while he was up there, his brother Aaron made these two golden calves and had everyone worship them and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And, you know, apparently what ended up happening, they started having a feast around these false gods and it turned into this great orgy. And Moses came down under the mountain to all this idolatry and, and all God's people are, you know, and you imagine Moses coming down and be horrified what's happening to God's holy people who are supposed to be set apart and, and they had been giving themselves the evil. And then this happens again when they, uh, in Numbers, uh, Numbers uh, is it 21 or 25? Uh, 25, where uh, they, uh, God's people worship uh, Baal at Peor. And uh, again, they give themselves over to sexual immorality. And what Paul is saying here is this is a warning that it is possible to pass through the waters of baptism. It's possible to eat the bread and drink, and drink the wine and drink the drink that God provides and yet have a life that retreats into the former life of slavery that we've been liberated from. That's possible. And so that's an important thing for us is Christians to be aware that our life is a life of grace, but the Bible also tells us that there is an element of remaining steadfast, holding fast to Christ, who is the head, that we stay with Jesus. And there's going to come periods in our life where, you know, discouragement, temptation, you know, do I even want to be a Christian? Am I, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm discouraged. I want to wander away from the Lord. There is going to be a part of the Christian life means to hold fast, and remain steadfast, immovable, and resolute. And so this kind of theme of the whole Bible is the theme of the whole Bible. God chooses the people by his grace. They pass through the waters of baptism. He, he sustains them through his presence and in, in their feasting on Christ. And uh, this is so that they might remain steadfast in their devotion to the Lord. Now, if you know the Old Testament, one of the things that happens, of course, is that Israel largely fails in this calling to be holy. And so this brings up another theme. So the first theme is this theme of God's people. God's chosen them as work among them. But the second theme is that the Bible is also about the Christ. Not just about the church, but the Bible is about the Christ. And we see this in this passage in two ways. How is the Christ one of the threads that ties together the whole Bible? The first is that Jesus is the mediator of the Old Testament. Jesus is the mediator of the Old Testament. Now, if you know the Bible, you might, uh, you know, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. It was given at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. But 1 Timothy tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean, a mediator? Well, this is one way to think of it. You know, one of the things that Christians say is that the God that we worship is one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And you might think about what are their roles in their relationship to the creation and God's purposes in creation, redemption, and judgment. And one of the things is that the father is kind of the one who plans everything. He's ordained whatever happens. He's orchestrating everything that happens according to his purposes. And the spirit is the one, you know, if you think of the father as in heaven, who's kind of overseeing everything, the spirit is the one who is God's presence within the creation. So, in the, in, for example, in the creation story, it says that God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And so the Spirit is God's presence in the creation, His power to work all things according, you know, that the Father has ordained. And then the Son, then, is like a go-between between heaven and earth, between God and man. And, uh, he's the, and there's this amazing statement where we see a part of that go-between aspect of the Son, who is Christ. Verse 4. It says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That is a strange thing. That Paul says that when Israel was wandering around the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt and they were often thirsty, there was this well or a rock that was following them to different places to provide the water that they needed. It was following them, it was with them. And he says that rock that was appearing to them was Christ himself who is sustaining and providing for them. And as you read through the Old Testament, you have an eye for that, and you say, you know, Jesus appears. He's the one who shows up. He's the go-between. He comes back and forth, and he appears at certain places. You will find that he appears all over the place in the Old Testament. So, for example, you see Abraham meets this guy, Melchizedek, who's a king, and he's a priest, and he's the king of Salem. The Prince of Peace is his name. And he serves bread and wine to Abraham, and Abraham ties to him. He's like, who's this guy? Melchizedek is Christ. He's appearing in the Old Testament. And then the, Abraham has this covenant ceremony with the Lord where he cuts these animals, and he puts them in a row, and there's this smoking fire pot and this, this flaming torch that come and pass through the pieces. And you say, what are these things that are coming and passing through the pieces in this covenant-making ceremony? It's Christ who is making this covenant and then there's this angel of the Lord. Who's, he's like called an angel, but he's also called the Lord. And this is a mixture. Who is this angel of the Lord who comes and eats with Abraham before the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? And you say, who's this guy who's eating? It's this, it's, that's Christ who came and he ate with Abraham. And there's all these places. This commander of the Lord's army who confronts uh, Joshua before the, the, the destruction of Jericho. And over and over again, there is this figure who appears at key moments in the life of God's people to meet with them, the go-between. Now, some of you may say, you know, I didn't know any of those stories that you just listed off. I don't, I don't know the Bible well enough to know that. That's just to say that Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. This is just, if you open your Bible and start reading it, you will find that he is there. He is the one who is leading the story. And as one author puts it, the Old Testament is a great epic story that's looking for an ending. The Old Testament is a great epic story that's looking for an ending, and Jesus is the great epic ending that it is looking for, Jesus Christ. He's the culmination. He's the, the one that the chorus has been singing about all along. Okay? So first of all, Jesus is the mediator of the Old Testament, but another thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is not only the mediator, the go-between, he is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the Old Testament. Actually, that word, you know, it says Christ is the rock. If you go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, which is the song Moses wrote about all their time in the wilderness, it says over and over again that the Lord is the rock. And so when it says that Christ is the rock, Paul is saying that Christ is the Lord 
who liberated, who created all things in the Old Testament, who saved Israel, Jesus is that God. And it says again here in verse 9, look at verse 9. Forgive me if I'm overloading you here. Stay with me. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is another reference to the Old Testament when Israel was in the wilderness and they were complaining and they said, why didn't you take us out of Egypt? We'd rather be slaves than following you around here in the wilderness. And they were testing the Lord. And it says, who were they testing? They were testing Christ. Christ is that God of the Old Testament. So which is an important thing. If you're here and you ever wondered, does the Bible actually say that Jesus was God? There are some verses that explicitly say that in the Bible, that Jesus is the God who created all things, who became a man. But the Bible is filled with little phrases like this, like verse 9, where all of a sudden, subtly, Paul just refers to God and says that was Christ. And which tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us something about Jesus. Because, you know, some of us think of the Bible in, in terms of like the Old Testament and the New Testament are very different. You know, there's the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of wrath and he's angry all the time and he's judging people. And then there's the God of grace in the New Testament. And he's very different. It's like he had this, you know, change of heart or something like that. Jesus is insistent that he is that God of the Old Testament. That passionate Loving, patient, persistent, pursuing, wrathful God of the Old Testament is who Christ is. He is not ashamed of that God. He says, I am that God. But it, so it doesn't just tell us something about who Christ is. It awakens us, wow, Jesus is that passionate God of the Old Testament. But it also tells us something about who God is. You know, if you're here and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm interested in learning about Jesus and the Bible I don't know anything about God. You know, you can't see God. He doesn't talk to me. I, I haven't heard him talk. He's invisible. He's in heaven. He seems far away. How am I supposed to know what God is like? The Bible says if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. God has said, this is who I am in Christ. I've revealed myself to you so you can know who I am. And if you want to know, you know, you want to know, is God friendly to sinners and welcome sinners? Does Jesus welcome sinners? You know, is God loving and kind and wise? And, you know, what is he like? Look at Jesus. If Jesus is that way, that's what God is like. The Bible says that Jesus is the strange, mysterious creator of the universe. Jesus is the man who made the world. Jesus is the man who made the world. So what's the Bible about? Two simple themes so far is that the Bible is about the church, God's people, his chosen people and his interactions of saving them by his grace. But also because of their persistent failure, it's about this mediator that God himself becomes the mediator between God and, uh, God and man in Christ and comes to us to draw us to the Lord. But there, you know, some of you might hear that and you say, okay, so the Bible's about God's special people and God's special person, Jesus, but what about the rest of the world? <laughs> Does God care about the rest of the world? I mean, I know he cares about his special people, but what about the rest of the world? And that leads to the third thing that we see in this passage, is that the Bible is about the creation. The Bible is about the renewal of all things. And uh, in a general sense, if you were to say, what is the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible has basically four parts to it. Creation, God made the world. The fall, 
humanity has rebelled against God and said, we want to be our own gods. And because of that, everything has gone wrong in the world. That's why there's all the violence and destruction and sadness and despair. It's because we say we want to be our own gods. So God has come to redeem humanity through Christ, to draw humanity back to himself. And at the end of the story, God is going to renew all things and make his creation renewed and come to perfect glory. And God is going to flood this creation with his presence and rid the world of all evil and violence and destruction. That's the story that the Bible says we're living in. Now, often Christians, when they tell that story, they only do the two middle parts. They say, we're all sinners, and we need Jesus to be forgiven. And we leave off the beginning and the end that we are living in God's good world. God made this world, and it's good, and he cares about it. And when God makes a good world, he doesn't just scrap it. He redeems it, and he renews it. And that's what God's purposes are in this story, is through his chosen people, and ultimately through Christ, God is going to renew all things. And you see that in a very strange way in this passage. You probably didn't catch this in this passage. This is one of the verses that you might just skim over, but it says something that's amazing. It's verse 11. Look at verse 11 in this passage. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And what that literally says is those these instructions were given to the church on whom the ends of the ages have met. Now, what are the ages? What are the ages that he's talking about? When the Bible says that this world has, throughout its history, will be divided into two ages. One is called this present evil age. It's the age we're living in right now, which is filled with violence and wars and hurricanes killing people and ethnic groups killing each other and marriages being torn apart and depression and sorrow and the world not functioning the way God intended it to function. And then there's the age to come, which is the age when Jesus will come and set all things right and make this world renewed again and filled it with his presence and flood it with his love. And what he says is that if you are in Christ, those two ages are colliding in your person, in this community, the present age and the age to come. Which, you know, for some of you, being a Christian is this thing where you feel often ripped into these two parts. There's a part of you that's so inspired about God, and you say, I, I want to love God, I want to walk with Jesus, I'm inspired by him, the Bible makes sense to me, I feel like God actually might love me. And there's a whole other part of you that is discouraged and say, life is hard, and I feel like I'm constantly failing God, and I don't know who I am, which side I am, why is that happening? It's because these two ages, it's not because you're two persons, it's because two worlds are colliding in us, in this community. And what that means is that when the Bible says that if you're in Christ, you are new creation, it means that you are a part of that coming world, stuck in the old world. And so you're a mixture of these two worlds. And of course, uh, uh, that's painful. But it means that we are looking forward to the promised land, the renewal of all things, which means the reconciling of all nations, that Jesus is making peace from all things in heaven and earth by the blood of his cross. And we are a part of that great story. And so the reason I tell you all these things, man, you say, this is a lot to think about. There's a lot in the Bible and tying this whole scriptures together. It's because we need to know that we are characters in this story, and we need to know what story we are living in if we're going to play our part. 
and have our hearts ignited by the hero of the story, who is Jesus. Let's pray together.